All right. Well, we are continuing our study in Second Thessalonians, and anybody that's talked to me in the last week knows that we are entering into a difficult uh, text. In fact, I would argue that as far as it goes in terms of unearthing the meaning of a text, this is the most difficult text that I've ever faced in the New Testament um, as, as a preacher. And I've found it to be extraordinarily challenging. And maybe some of you have looked into this text before. Uh, but I so I but I just wanted to highlight that and and I there are certain aspects to this text that I will not give you definitive answers on. I won't have exactly what the text means, uh, even if I ever had that. In this case, I particularly don't have that. And so, what I want us to do as we enter into this text is to think about the bigger picture. What what the Apostle Paul, what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. Uh, in this text, we're going to be looking at Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to twelve. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles or in your bulletins. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to twelve. And, and and by way of introduction, just to remind ourselves where we're at, uh, you'll remember that the Thessalonian church had a if they had a big issue or major issue, it was in the question of when. Is the Lord returning? There was some false teaching that was going on that suggested that the Lord had already returned, at least spiritually, that his return had already come and gone. And where does that leave uh, the church? And Paul is correcting some of those things. So that's just as a way of reminder. But let's look at the text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, now, he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask for your help. I ask that you would help all of us to know and to savor and to love the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is coming. 
Lord, we thank you that he is the king, the sovereign one who rules and reigns over all the powers and principalities. So, Lord, help us today to see your wonder and your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're awash in information. I often tell folks that we live in the age of the second Tower of Babel. Um, And I don't know if you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, but in the Tower of Babel you have uh, the people of the the world coming together to create this large tower as a sort of a, a sign of their power and their pride. They're making this tower that is up to the heavens. They're trying to reach up to God, and so God because of their pride and hubris, confuses their language, and they end up failing at that, that, that uh, process of building that tower because um, they failed to recognize that ultimately God is, is the one who is all-powerful. Um, but the reason I like to call this the second Tower of Babel, is this era, is that I think of the Internet a little bit like the Tower of Babel. What do I mean? Well, in our own hubris and pride as, as humanity, we think we can gather up all the information of the world, and if we do that, if we just gather it all up into this great uh, thing, this, this internet of, of ideas, that then we can have all knowledge for ourselves. Think about the hubris of that, right? It's pride. It's the... It's the uh, hubris of wanting to be omniscient, all-knowing. But what happens? What has happened now that we have sort of collated and collected uh, information from across the globe and from throughout time and we've pulled it into the Internet? What's happened is we've become more and more confused as a people, more awash in information, overwhelmed by that tide of information. I, I look at it as the Lord sitting there in judgment saying, you thought you could be omniscient, but in reality, you cannot know all things. And when it comes to this topic of the second coming of Jesus, it, if you go and you Google the second coming, you will get as much information as you could possibly ever want with regard to when and how Jesus is going to return. What signs will precede his coming? What they mean? Is Putin the new Antichrist? I don't know. Is he the man of lawlessness? Is Jesus' return imminent? imminent? I thought it was Gorbachev. He had the sign of the beast. We, we, or was it the Pope? That's what the, 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 the reformers all thought. Or what about Nero? That's what the early church thought. It was, it was these Roman emperors that, persecuted the church. Maybe we just need to go Google this, right? We'll figure it out. Good luck. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Thessalonian church saying, don't be shaken, don't be alarmed, don't be deceived, stick to what you know to be true, that we that is the apostles, have taught you concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. We've given you the information that you need. Don't go off. Stick to the word. Stick to what is revealed. Namely this, that the sovereign king is coming to judge and to save. And as we dive into the weeds of this difficult text, I encourage you to remember this truth. 
Hold fast to it. Don't let it go. Don't be deceived. The sovereign king is coming to judge and to save. Okay, that's what we need to hold on to, even when we don't understand exactly what this text means. Hold fast to the truth. The sovereign judge and king is coming. And I want to look at this in three ways. First, stand firm in what you know. Second, I want us to look at how lawlessness gets exposed. And finally, how truth gets revealed. Okay, okay? And this will help us to hold fast to what we know, that the sovereign judge is coming, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, stand firm in what you know. Now, this is the, the very first few verses here, verses 1 uh, to 3. And verse 5, I want to just read again, just so we have them in our minds. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. And then in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you all these things? Okay, so I want us us to stand there and think about what does it mean to stand firm in what you know? A couple background things to note about the passage. Uh, The concern here that I've already mentioned at the beginning is that the Lord Jesus in some way had already returned surreptitiously, quietly, secretly, or spiritually. He he came and nobody saw it coming and he left or he, he came spiritually and the resurrection has already happened. We notice in 1 Corinthians, this was a big concern, right? They thought the resurrection had already happened or wasn't going to happen at all. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, no, wait, the resurrection is yet to come. If you don't hold to the resurrection of the dead, then we're to be pitied. But here, I think the issue is more, has he come or not? And what are the implications? If we say that the Lord Jesus has already returned, what are the implications? How might that impact the lives of the Christians in Thessalonica or our lives today? Because I think that's the question we have to ask. The first implication, I think, was that there would be no hope of bodily resurrection. Part of that day when he comes is that we are raised up with him, that we meet him. If he's already done, then what hope do those that die have of resurrection? The resurrection has already passed. That was the concern, as I mentioned, of the Corinth. Second, there might be a laxity with regard to the commands. In other words, this idea of lawlessness. People might start to say, well, if Jesus already came and judged... What, what worry do I have of being judged? What worry is there of judgment? If the Lord Jesus has already come, I don't worry about there being a judgment day. Right? So what, what does that mean for living? Well, well live how you want to live, right? Do what you want to do. What about even for the believer? So for folks who are swayed and who head off into these aberrant beliefs, it's one thing. But what about the believer that says, I'm confused? I thought Jesus was coming again, and now I'm hearing from these folks over here that he's already come. I, I don't know what to think. It's like that feeling of going online to look for an answer. You, you read something like, ah, oh, that's it. 
oh no, it's this. Oh no, wait, it's this. Which is it? Even the true believers would be shaken, uncertain about what is true and what is not. And just as, as a note about this, this idea of Jesus having already come, it, we might tend to think of this as something that is an idea that was part of maybe the early church, the Thessalonian church. They had this view, false teachers that were teaching this. But I just want to point out that in 1889, uh, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Russell, predicted that Christ would return in 1914. And when 1914 came about, and the Lord Jesus did not visibly return in any way that people would recognize, he changed his thinking and said, well, it wasn't that Christ didn't return. He did return, but he returned invisibly. And then began the selection of the 144,000. So this isn't just theoretical. This is stuff that people still believe today. And Paul's saying, hold fast to what I have taught you, what we, the apostles, have taught you. And Paul's clear in the rest of the section you will know when Christ has returned. It will not be a silent thing. It will not be a subtle thing. It will be the very revelation of the King of Heaven. Added to this reality is the fact that Paul has already been teaching them this truth. Verse 5, he had said, Do not remember when I was with you? I told you these things. Now, we aren't told what that conversation was like. We don't have uh, the account of that conversation. But we have an idea that he was telling them that Jesus will come again. The apostolic witness that he would come with the clouds in the sky and he would be revealed. And that every knee would bow before him. So Paul exhorts them, don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed by the various things you are hearing around you. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way whatsoever. Rather, stand firm in what you know. As we consider all the information that we are inundated with on a daily basis, I don't think this exhortation could be more relevant. I think it's so easy for us to go down the rabbit holes of information and get lost in uncertainty to start digging out all possible thoughts and worlds, and we start to go into all sorts of understanding, and we get lost. Anyone who's been on a hike knows this rule. You stay on the trail, right? You, don't, you, you look for those blazes, the well-trodden trail, because as soon as you get off the trail, what happens? You start to see every tree as the same. You get disoriented. I read a tragic story of a woman on the Appalachian Trail, one of the most well-trod trails. Uh, and she left one, one hut, one place of camping, was supposed to meet her husband at another hut. She went down this path. She even greeted somebody, and she never made it to that hut. And she disappeared for, for, for a long time, and they found her, her remains later, not far from the trail. She got off the trail, She got lost and dazed and confused. As soon as you veer off the path, you start to lose sight. 
So it is with us when we neglect the foundation of the word of God. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, 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 remember what you've been taught. Stand firm in the truth. Walk in it. Paul encourages the Ephesian church similarly when he describes the necessity uh, that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers equip the saints. Do you remember this? In Ephesians chapter 4, he goes on in that passage and he says, they do this work of equipping so, so that we might do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead, rather, we speak the truth and love to one another so that we might be built up and grow up into Christ. Paul's point in that passage is we need to be grounded in the word, standing firm on it, growing in it. I think it's really easy for us to lose our way. I know it's easy for me, anyway, to lose my way. Funny thing happens when we neglect that means of grace, of studying and growing, when we, when we fail to look at it, it. It's a subtle thing, isn't it? Because especially if you've grown up in the church, you have a certain baseline of knowledge, a certain level that you understand. And so you, you hold on to that, and that's a treasure. You can store that away in your heart and remember it. But when we're not daily, regularly feeding upon Christ and feeding in his, on his word, what happens, it's a subtle thing. But all the pressures of the world start to come in on us. And we start to worry. We start to get anxious. We start to, to think about things maybe that we ought not to. We start to go off on other paths. We start to indulge in sinful desires. On subtle ways, we start to move away from the path. But the more that we attend to this, to study this, the more that we stand in this, the more grounded we become, the more firm that we become, the more safe we become, staying with the blaze before us, the Word of God. What about you? Are you grounded in the Word, holding fast? Because when False teachers come, and the Apostle Paul clearly says throughout the New Testament, when they come, and they will, are you prepared to say, that's not true? That's not the way. Again, if you're ever on a, on a hike, there's often little deer paths that go off. And if you, you sometimes look at them and like, is that the way? I do a lot of fishing on streams, and you're always looking for the, 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 the well-trodden path down to the stream. And oftentimes I'll, I'll think I'm on a path and all of a sudden I hit a bunch of briars, right? And I'm like, this is not the way. What's the way? It's here for us in his word. Stand firm in what you know. Second, there is here a picture of the lawlessness that is exposed. The Apostle Paul turns his attention now to how they, that is 
the Thessalonian church can know that, in fact, Christ has not yet returned. And he begins by saying that the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness. All right, so now we're entering into the thick of it. I did the easy stuff at the beginning. Stand firm in the word. We could all get the... Now we're talking about specifically what is Paul talking about when he talks about the man of lawlessness? What does he mean when he says the rebellion? What is he talking about a little later when he talks um, about uh, this one who will uh, keep back or uh, uh, the word is here... Uh, sorry, sorry. Restrain, keep back, restrain. Thank you. Um, keep back the lawlessness. So we got we have a little bit of work to do. Um, and before we delve into the, because this is, again, we're using the imagery of trying to stand firm in the word, trying to know what's clear. Uh, but we do have to go into the weeds a little bit. And before we do that, I want to step back and say, let's not miss uh, the forest for the trees. Um, and here's what we know, the, the clear things that we know. First, we are to stand firm in the truth, which we looked at. Second, we know that lawlessness will be revealed and will be judged. Right? That's, that's what he's going to say here. So whatever else you get caught up on, who this man of lawlessness is, just know lawlessness will be revealed and will be judged. And then third, it'll be judged by the sovereign king who is coming again to save his people. So if, if you lose sight of everything else, that's what you need to remember. Those three things. Who the man of lawlessness is, I don't know. That will be a little tougher, but we can understand that we need to stand in the truth, that lawlessness will be exposed and judged, and that the one who judges is the king who's coming again. So let's dive into the weeds. Three questions stand out. The first is, what is this rebellion? Second, who is this man of lawlessness? And then third, down in verses 6 and 7, what or who is restraining this man of lawlessness or this lawlessness that is ongoing? First, let's consider the rebellion. The Greek word here for rebellion is apostasia. Uh, If that sounds familiar to you, it is the same word that we get apostasy from. So what is apostasia or apostasy? It is the idea that one would fall away from. Particularly in the context of the New Testament, it's one who falls away from faith. One who is part of the covenant community, but who turns away from it. Apostasy. Right? So that's the word. So if you're looking here and you see the word rebellion, uh, that's the word. And here it seems to refer to some large-scale turning from God from within the covenant community that is who? The church, broadly speaking. Um, this, that's a tough thought. We're going we're gonna to explore it a little bit. But as an aside, it's important to note that verses 10 and 11 indicate that those who fall away were not true believers. So we think of falling away, can I lose my salvation? And I want to encourage you, believer, those who trust in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, who rest in him alone, you cannot. He holds you to the end, right? You cannot. But there are, in the church of God, many who pretend to have faith 
and yet who abandon the faith. This is the people that I think the text is talking about. And we see this in verses 11, uh, 10 and 11. Those who are perishing, who refused to love the truth. Right? The, the picture of those who are apostatizing. Nevertheless, Paul seems to be indicating that there will be a future, large-scale, falling away, and that is on account of this lawless one, or at least they're in concert together. There's an apostasy, and the lawless one comes along and maybe exacerbates the apostasy. Either way, it's at this moment when this happens that it is the, the sign that Jesus is coming. Okay? When that happens, when that revelation happens. So, a couple things. It's important to point out that Paul here is drawing on imagery and language from the prophet Daniel, which is, in the Old Testament world, an equally challenging and difficult book to interpret. But he is not being novel here, and I just want to point that out. I don't think he's being novel. He's drawing on ideas from Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 11. We're not going to go there. I think it would convolute our process and maybe keep us for another couple hours. So we're just going to stick to our text for now, but I just wanted to point that out. But what is clear from the text concerning this man of lawlessness is first that he is a man of lawlessness, right? He is one who exalts Himself. He's one who is against, not just against God's law, antinomian, but he is anomious. He is someone who doesn't hold to the law or any law other than a law unto himself. He is the one who defines what is law. He's one who exalts himself and sets himself up as the lawgiver, if you will. It's the one who defines what is true and right and good for himself. And he sets himself up as this great. God, right? He proclaims to be God. And where does he set himself up? But he set him, sets himself up in the temple. All right, now we've just entered another. So we've gone down one rabbit trail. Now we're going to go down another rabbit trail. Just briefly. What is... Where, okay, so this future man of lawlessness who is against God, who is full of pride and hubris, who sets himself up as a, a godlike character who himself is endowed with some power by the evil one who is able to do signs and wonders. So he is a man who clearly has power. Sets himself up in the temple. All right. Is that temple an earthly temple? Is that temple one that's going to be rebuilt? There are some Christian traditions that would say the temple is going to be rebuilt, and until that day, the end can't come, but when that day comes, then all of this stuff will transpire, right? Is it going, does it, do we need to rebuild the temple? Other people say, no, actually, all of this has already been fulfilled. Again, going back to the book of Daniel and to some intertestamental works and to the New Testament time frame, there was this idea of uh, one who would come who would set up an abomination of desolation. So I'm not going to go into all the details. I'll just let you know that this one person in, in, in the ancient world, in around the 4th century B.C., goes into uh, the temple. His name was Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he sets up this, this wicked sacrifice as sort of an affront to the Jewish people. Daniel was somewhat looking forward to him. Well, later in the period of the New Testament, you have uh, at the fall of Rome, you have 
the general of the Roman army come in and do something similar, knowing that he would tick off the Jews as they were destroying the temple. So is it referring to the actions that have already happened? Were those people, these men of of lawlessness, they've already come and gone? Or does the temple here refer to the church? Now, I'm going to lean on this last one. Or that's going to be, I would say, the most likely. Or some other earthly temple that I can't imagine. But... I think it's most likely here, when we look at the New Testament, Paul often is talking about the temple as the people of God. All right, so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? It means, it points to the reality that there is one who will come, who will lead a rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ, who will reveal himself as God and will come with signs and wonders and set himself up in the place of authority within the context of the people of God. And lead people astray. How that all looks, I don't know. That's, that's the picture that I'm painting. Uh, I don't know the details, but I, I, I'm going to land on that spot. That I think as the time approaches of the Lord's coming, there will be one who comes, who leads many astray. All right. That's a lot of detail, I understand. But what do we make of all of this? Well, we have one more thing to deal with, which is this restrainment that happens. It is probably the most enigmatic statement. If we looked at who is the man of lawlessness, who, what is this, this group of apostasy that happens, and what is the temple, and what does it refer to, this statement about who restrains is very enigmatic and seems to refer to something Paul has already talked to them about that they would know. My best guess would be that it is a reference to God or to the Holy Spirit, the one who is able to restrain evil, and then at some point, the one who allows evil to be exposed. And this is, this is the nub of what I want to get, get at here from this point, is that at some point, what is under the surface now, what is pervasive across this globe, which is lawlessness, which is the idea that there is continued, ongoing rebellion against God and His his Word. Rebellion against Christ. Ongoing sin. It's all going to get exposed. It's going to be shown for what it is. And what's our takeaway? I think the point that Paul's making, and and I want to get this from verse 7. So just look at verse 7 real quick here. In verse 7 it says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's that great uh, movie, and I guess it's a book, uh, The Wizard of Oz, right? And in that of course Dorothy and her companions want to get to find the wizard, and they end up at the, the city, and they go to this great chamber and there's the wizard speaking and it's this big booming voice and the dog Toto goes and he pulls back the curtain and you see this man behind the curtain. There's something like that here that I think is being described. Under the surface is this 
machination, this work that is ongoing in our hearts, this, this battle for our souls, the, the evil one, sin, the flesh, the devil, are all at work in trying to rip us away from the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to do everything in his power that we might turn from Christ and turn away to the things of this world, that we might come under the powers and principalities, that we might be destroyed. That is the evil one's intent. And I think the Apostle Paul is saying here, listen, this lawlessness that is going on is going to be exposed. At some point, the, 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 everything's going to be let go. But instead of there being this little man behind the curtain, we're going to see this terrible, wicked, awful man who stands to destroy God's people. It's a terrifying thing. And it says many will turn away. Mass apostasy. What do we do with this? I think the first thing is realizing that we don't fight in this world against flesh and blood, against one another. But we fight against, say in the flesh, the devil. We fight against the powers and principalities of the world that are at work, those spiritual powers that are work, at work in our lives. We face a battle. There is a battle for your heart. And what are you doing about it? Apostle Paul later in, 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 uh, or in his other epistles will say, you know, put on the full armor of God. It's yours in Christ Jesus. You own it, but, but put on that helmet of salvation. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Shield, faith, boots, readiness of the gospel. All of it. Put it on. Recognize the war that we're at is not against one another, but it is against the evil one, and he is at work to destroy us. That is the goal of the evil one, to destroy the church. And he will get revealed. But here I want to go forward, because here's the good news. Because I think if we look just at this exposure of this man of lawlessness, I think we can get overwhelmed thinking that there's going to be some grand apostasy. What does that mean for me? What is my hope? Where, where do I find comfort? But here's the good news. Evil is exposed for what it is, and it does not have the final word, and it is not the strong word. Listen to this here. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan before that. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they are refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's a heavy word, but it's also a good word. Notice, notice the heaviness of it. There is a judge who's coming. We can't get away from that. He's going to come as soon as the man of lawlessness is revealed. Another man is revealed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in all power and authority. The one over here who has some power and authority, who has signs and wonders, is done away with in a breath. In a breath. Apostle Paul here is picking up passage in Isaiah chapter 11. 
In this picture, there is a righteous branch. I just want to read this because it's a beautiful picture. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That is the picture of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't compare to this evil one. We can look on with trepidation at this time frame when this man of lawlessness will be established and somehow be related to the people of God, but he is wicked and leading people astray and leading this whole apostasy. But then when we get the real picture, what we see is not that. What we see is the living God coming and judging. And the hope of our salvation being revealed. What do we do with this? How do we apply it? I think there's a warning here. It says stand firm in the truth. I think there is a warning that we examine our hearts and lives. Do we trust and rest in this one who is the King of Kings? The sovereign Lord who has all of it, the timing of it, the details of it, the pers- all of it is in his power and control. None of it is in this, this wicked man of lawlessness. Do you trust in that sovereign king? Because if you don't trust in that sovereign king, the one who gave himself for you, who died for all that lawlessness in your heart. If you don't trust in that one, but you somehow have put your trust in your own law or in uh, something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's a warning here that at that day, it's all going to be revealed. And he'll bring a sword of judgment. And so today is the day to repent, to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first application. The second application I know, because I feel this, that we are, we hate uncertainty. One of the things that drives us to figure out all the details of of the the person and the timing and all of this, the reason that we look at current events and and all the tragedies that are going on around the world and as we look at the, the problems in our society and we try to make sense of it is there's so much uncertainty and we can't put all the pieces together and we long for something that just ties it all up. And so we, we try to fit all the pieces together. And we do that. And here, what I think the Apostle Paul is saying is saying, trust me. I'm the sovereign king. I have it all in my hand. I have you in my hands. And that's the picture at the beginning of this section. We kind of skipped over it a little bit, but I meant to come back to it at the end. And I want to look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's our hope. Friends, have you rested in that? The Apostle Paul will greet in in this letter, he'll greet the church by saying grace to you and peace. 
And at the end of the letter, he will bless the church by saying, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. What he's saying here in our passage, he's saying, You want to know what it means to have peace? It means resting in the sovereign hand of God who saves sinners like you. Put your rest and trust in him alone. Let's pray.